Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm a pastor at City Reform. I'm still getting used to this building. Uh, it's just a, a little different being here. I'm sure you all feel that as well. Uh, everywhere we go, there's a, an adjustment period. One change that we are making, though, that coincides with being in the building is that as we dismiss children, we're going to ask their parents to walk with them back to Children's Church. Signs are there. If you need any help with directions, they can tell you. Then later, when people start to come forward, our helpers come forward with communion, we'll, we'll ask you to go and get them and bring them back. It's just an added step that our uh, children's ministry team thought was appropriate and helpful uh, for, for what we're doing. We are here uh, working through a book of the Bible called Zechariah, an Old Testament prophet who had a ministry after the people of God had returned from exile and gotten back to Jerusalem. Uh, they had dreamed of that moment for the uh, seven decades, roughly, of being t- away from their city, uh, the, their temple, the people, um, but rebuilding was hard. And their first attempts to rebuild the temple uh, ran aground because there was a lot of opposition. So God uh, raised up leaders, uh, uh, one of them named Joshua, another named Zerubbabel, who were leading this effort to rebuild. He also raised up prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, who spoke hope to encourage the people for the hard work of rebuilding. The early phases of uh, Zechariah, the early section of the book, consists of eight visions that give hope for this rebuilding. We uh, have done three the last couple of weeks. This is the fourth. I'll read the, the text and together we'll affirm this is God's word for us. Zechariah chapter 3 verses 1 through 10. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken, away your, your, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day." In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of the Lord. As we've looked at some of these visions, we've uh, wrestled with them. Some of them seem impossibly hard, and we don't even know how to start. There are hard aspects of what we read today, but the main drama is a little more discernible. Joshua, the high priest in this vision, is standing, as it would seem, in the heavenly court before the angel of the Lord, representing God himself. 
We see these uh, courtroom scenes throughout the prophets where God is judge and God's people are being tried. In this particular case, though, uh, uh, Joshua is standing in a position of shame. He has filthy garments, unacceptable for the situation. And what's worse, he's being publicly accused. There is an accuser. Uh, The reference here is to Satan, which means literally the accuser, uh, who's pointing out all of his failings and all that is uh, wrong about his position. At many levels, uh, that image is painfully relevant for us. It's not as foreign as things we've seen the past week. There's a, there's a point of connection here. We, we can identify what it means to be in a public setting not wearing what we should be wearing. Uh, last week, uh, during I watched the second half of the Super Bowl, and there was a, a, a commercial, a series of commercials about a man who had a stain on his shirt, and everyone could see it. And there was a certain tension that surrounded that as the commercials unfolded. We're told, uh, I read this on a website this past week, that the third most common nightmare that people have is uh, being, quote, being partially or completely naked in public. And this is sort of by definition, inappropriately clothed for the setting. The uh, website goes on to say this, this dream is quite common. It indicates vulnerability, shamefulness, or could symbolize being caught off guard or unprepared. In some cases, it can mean you feel exposed in front of other people you're trying to impress. It can also mean a sense of inferiority and fear that other people will find you to be transparent. In various forms, we may have dreams like this. Even in in the, the, the folklore of our culture, stories of improper dress for an occasion are very common. You remember Cinderella? Her clothes were stained with the cinders of the ashes she had to maintain as a servant girl in her stepmother's house. And later, even the the dress she she weaves for herself or constructs is ripped by her evil stepmothers. She can't go to the ball. She can't enter enter the royal court unless she's dressed properly. Fortunately, she has a fairy godmother, bippity boppity boo, everything's solved, and they live happily ever after. But the tension is there, isn't it? It's a relatable tension to be seen, to be exposed. And we recognize that what's going on here, the point of this story, as is the point of all of our stories, is not having dirty clothes in itself. There's nothing morally wrong with dirty clothes. If you do a dirty job and you have dirty clothes, that is normal and acceptable. But what is happening here very clearly in the vision is that what what is revealed about Joshua is that he's inadequate for the setting. The reason we have dreams about being improperly dressed in public is because it's a picture, an outward picture of our inward reality being exposed and seen. That who we are as a person might be revealed. That's really what is at the heart of these concerns. What does it mean for us to, to be uh, uh, people who can be clothed in a way that's so real and life-giving? There's three things we want to uh, think about as, as we look about it. Uh, we want to think, first of all, uh, about this reality of being uh, exposed. And how, how, how does that connect to our lives? And then we're going to dig deeper as we go into the text and ask, what did the, what did the clean clothing and the dirty clothing mean 
for Zechariah in 520 BC in its context, because there are parts of this that are very different, even though we can relate to it. But third, we'll then see how God, God himself, deals with this fundamental and probing problem. Um, So first of all, what does it mean uh, for us? How do we continue to relate to this? Um, As I mentioned, this is something that many of us can relate to. Perhaps we would say our, our deepest fear, really, is to be seen and to be rejected, to be exposed for other people, for the real self of our failure and our weakness, our sin, to be exposed, for us to be seen and known and cast out. And that's what's at stake in this particular passage. We see that uh, Joshua is standing in the heavenly court and uh, before the angel of the Lord and Satan at his right hand is accusing him. Now, we don't get to hear exactly what the accusation is, but the context makes it clear. What he's saying is he doesn't belong here. He shouldn't be allowed to minister here as a priest. He should be cast out. He's not properly dressed into the royal court. It's really, it's the voice of uh, the, the evil stepsisters. You can't go to the ball in that. But we know it's not just the clothing. It is Joshua representing the moral failure of the entire people. That's what he did as a priest. He represented the history of failure generation after generation, their sin, the rebellion, the ways in which they had failed before God was being exposed. And the accuser says, they don't belong here. And again, I think this, is a, this can be a, a very uh, a real situation that we find ourselves in, not in a royal courtroom or anything, but, but that sense, that fear of being seen and known and rejected. Uh, inward guilt or the fear of the shame that comes as other people say, uh, see and know what's going on. And as we enter into today, I want you to, to consider for a moment some of the ways you might be tempted to deal with that. There are alternatives, are there not? As we encounter Joshua here in the opening scene with filthy garments in the heavenly court, being accused, fearful of being cast out, we, we could imagine that perhaps some of our other strategies might be helpful to him. How are you tempted to guilt, deal with guilt and shame on your own? Uh, the most common, perhaps, is simply to hide it. Just Joshua, maybe you could just throw something on over top of that, you know, your bathrobe, throw it around you. No one will know. And if they see, if they peek underneath, perhaps you can cover up with a, a long explanation of the other good things you've been doing. You can cover it over by looking the part, combing your hair right, putting on a nice smile. And when people ask you how you're doing, you just tell them you're fine. And perhaps you even list all of your good activities for the past week. They don't need to know. Or, or perhaps if that doesn't work, you can blame shift. Right? Maybe it's really someone else's fault. Someone must have gotten him dirty. If the, if the dirty garments of uh, Joshua represent the acts of the nation of Israel, you know, it wasn't Joshua's fault to begin with. It was really his parents' It was the generation before him that got sent into exile. Joshua was born there. It's really your parents' fault, right? I mean, people have spent uh, millions of dollars in counseling to determine, I'm so thankful to find out it's my parents' fault, everything that's happened to me. We can deny it. It's not really dirty. 
We can attempt to redefine what's going on and make it more acceptable. Or, or perhaps in a really blatant attempt, we can just be shameless. It's who I am. Who are you to judge me, angel of the Lord? These are very common attempts for us, are they not? And yet, what they all have in common is they are human strategies. And they may produce a measure of comfort in the circumstances, but human strategies depend on our effort, and they don't produce lasting peace. As soon as the bathrobe slips, we may be exposed. And the deadening of our own hearts that we endure as we attempt to be shameless leaves us less human. What we see in this passage today is not a human strategy for dealing with shame, but a divine strategy. Joshua is actually passive in the story. He he doesn't say anything and he doesn't do anything. It's God who takes the action. In, In order to understand that action, we have to dive a little deeper to understand Zechariah, his context, and who Joshua was. But the real heart of this message is what God does for us in our guilt and our shame and how it can bring life in ways we could never achieve on our own. So journey with me back to 520 B.C., where we encounter Zechariah and Joshua standing with the the exiles. They've they've been here for a number of years, perhaps the better part of two decades in Jerusalem, gradually rebuilding, but the temple has not yet been completed. The temple was the heart of Old Testament religion. It was in the temple that through the high priest, God would meet with his people. The staggering promise that is introduced in the Old Testament of the Bible is that God will dwell with his people. The very God of heaven who made all things would dwell with his people. This would happen as God lived in a tangible way in the inner chambers of the temple. The the full glory of God was made known. It's not as if God needed a house, but he was providing a place where the, the, the power and the magnitude of his glory was found in concentrated form. So this is a great beauty and a great joy, but there's another aspect of the temple that was so important because God's glorious presence was perfect in holiness. God is, the Bible tells us, like a consuming fire. And when we come into his presence as people who are not perfect in our holiness, there is a danger to us. To come into the presence of a holy God as someone who is compromised, distorted, sinful, this picture of wearing a filthy garment is a risk to the person who does it. We see in uh, Leviticus 16, if you have a a bulletin insert, this is written on there, uh, uh, the opening commands given to the high priest, the first high priest, years before Joshua, And the warning was this, if you come into the Holy of Holies on your own, if you come into this inner section of the temple where the presence of God is, any old way you choose, you will die. That gets your attention, doesn't it? If you disobey this, you will die. (laughs) And he said, anyone else who goes in will die. That's a really stark warning label. You know, we were reading something and we're saying, what's the directions, blah, 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 do this. You might have headaches or dizziness. You pay attention. If it says, use this wrong, you will die, all right? You, you make sure you have your glasses on. People my age, and I got to wear glasses to see the fine print. I would read it, right, if it said that. I want to know what's going on. Except for one time a year, 
No one would go in. But once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, through an elaborate ritual of, of sacrifices that would be offered for sin and cleansing rituals, he would be robed in the, in the pure garments of a priest. He could go into that place in the temple and minister in the presence of God. And as the high priest went in, he wore on his chest stones inscribed with the tribes of Israel as if they went with him into the presence of God. And there he could offer a sacrifice that would pay for the sin of the people for the year. On the day of atonement, the high priest could go into the temple. Now, that whole story hopefully illustrates what's at stake here. Yes, this is Joshua as an example of feeling shameful in public. I, I think that's true. But at a deeper level, this is tied into the very operation of the temple. If, if you were to read uh, Leviticus 16 or, or also on your insert uh, passage from Exodus 39, it would tell you how the priest should be dressed, the type of clothes you would wear, this outward picture of the cleansing that was required to go into the presence of God. And Joshua had failed. Like a nightmare where you're being chased and, and you find yourself running through quicksand and you can't escape. Or when you're in that public place improperly dressed and you just can't make it right. Joshua couldn't fix it on his own. In, in fact, as we look at the story, he doesn't even try. The story is not a story of how Joshua scrambles and works it out and tries harder. It's a story of God intervening in a place of deep and profound need. If Joshua couldn't go into the temple that was going to be built, then there couldn't be a sacrifice for sin. There was no access to God. If Joshua wasn't righteous, then no one could be righteous. The third thing we see as we look at the passage is what God did about it. This is good news. The word gospel means good news. It's a story of God doing something about our problem. Uh, people associate the term gospel with the New Testament, but here in this vivid picture of shame, guilt, exposure, and need, it's a picture of good news that God does something about our condition what do we see? There's five elements we see as God intervenes and inter interacts with it. Um, the first thing that we see in verse 2 is that God rebukes Satan. Now, uh, again, we, we don't have a whole lot of description about Satan in, in the Old Testament. Um, the Bible as a whole uh, would like, we'd like to know more. Um, but what the Bible does tell us is that we have a spiritual enemy who opposes God's people. If you were here for the Praying Life seminar, you may remember the, the phrase that the, the presenter used. He said, we have a sworn enemy. And what's interesting is, in the story of the, of the, the Bible paints, the role of the, your spiritual enemy is to accuse you, is to mislead you with words to distract you. And so we hear the voice in, the, in this courtroom scene accusing, that they, asking that they would be cast out. But thankfully, God intervenes. Through the angel of the Lord, God speaks. It's a little confusing the way it reads because the angel of the Lord is both speaking for God and speaking about God. The Lord says, the Lord rebuke you. That, it comes across just a little weird to our ears, but that's what's happening. The, the representative of God, the angel of the Lord, 
rebuke you. Is this not Jerusalem, chosen Jerusalem, a brand plucked from the fire? He's saying this, essentially, God will have none of it. Like, like a, a, a judge in a courtroom silencing the prosecuting attorney. You are out of order. He silences the accusations. And the argument he makes, a brand plucked from a fire, what it seems to be saying is, listen, God brought his people back from exile in Babylon. He went to such great lengths to bring them back to the land. Do you think he's going to cast them out now? Look at how committed he has been to them. God is going to act. And the accusations are going to end. The second thing we see in this, this beautiful, poignant picture is that Joshua is reclothed in righteousness. Uh, verses 4 and 5, the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Again, the thing we could miss here is that really this is part and parcel with the duties of the high priest and his appropriate clothing. What he's receiving here is clean clothing generally, but more specifically, these pure vestments and the turban that's going to be put on his head, Joshua is being outfitted for the task that God has him to do. He can enter the temple. This theme of uh, being clothed in the midst of our shame, however, is part of a thread that runs throughout the Bible. We read throughout the prophets that, the, that God will send someone who will deal with our problem of sin and guilt and where we had uh, filthy garments, he will reclothe us that he will care for us. Even the very beginning of the Bible is our, our first ancestors disobeyed God and were cast out of the garden. Adam and Eve are clothed by God after they gave up making fig leaf dresses for themselves. It's the theme is found throughout. And as we move to the New Testament, this theme explodes. The idea is that by faith in Christ, we are connected to Christ and in him we are robed in his righteousness. A theme that is so common in so many of the songs that we sing, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. What a vivid and powerful image it is. But for some of us, it can seem very abstract. I have the righteousness of Jesus. I'm in Jesus, and God sees me as if I am him. Tonight at our evening service, John, Pastor John's going to take that theme and just really dwell on it. So if you want to think about it more, then you should come and join us. But here, for now, just let that image set with you. Those places where you have felt your shame exposed, perhaps again literally wearing the wrong thing or, or more likely your weakness, failure, your sin being evident. Have you experienced someone meeting you there? Someone graciously meeting you in the place, in the midst of your shame, to minister to you there, to bring clothing and healing. The New Testament says love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't mean we deny them, but in our ministry to one another, we extend grace and mercy to people. Have you experienced that? 
My hope and prayer is that you would. It is a pointer to that greater reality that God clothes us in Jesus. The third thing we see follows directly from it, and that is that Joshua is restored to ministry. And we look at verses 6 and 7, the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge over my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. And as we understand the context, that actually does make sense. Joshua is the high priest would have been disqualified because of filthy garments or, more importantly, the, the sin of the people, which led to their exile and the destruction of the temple to begin with. That would have disqualified him, but he's reclothed, his iniquity is taken away, and he is given, re, reappointed, so to speak, installed in the office of, of high priest. If we think about the, the, the movement of Zechariah as a book, we've been focusing on the temple being rebuilt. Well, here in this chapter, we know that the priest will be restored. This is such good news for the people. There is one who can go into the presence of God on your behalf and offer the sacrifice that you need. Now, now students of the Bible who are reading this section and listening very carefully might say, there's something just a little strange here. Because in every place that we learn about the priestly garments and the priest entering into the temple, it is woven together with a system of sacrifice. If you were to read, for instance, uh, uh, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, uh, the, the section in your, your handout has a dot, dot, dot in it. I left out a lot. All the part in the middle is, is sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. They're going to make it possible for the high priest to go in. And you're looking at this now, perhaps. Again, you're really paying attention. You're thinking, wait a second, where did that go? It's just if, if, if bippity-boppity-boo, the old clothes are off, the new clothes are on. Well, there's something very interesting happening in this passage. And, and again, it's a vision not every vision carries every aspect of what's happening. But I think there's an interesting aspect here where we expect there to be a reference to the sacrifices that are made. Zechariah does something different. God shows him something different. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on that stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a day. Now, those were probably the hardest verses we read today. There's a lot of strange things going on, but if we go piece by piece, we can make some sense of it. Uh, first of all, uh, we recognize that, he, that the, the address is given to Joshua and the other priests, the friends who are with him. And he says that these priests are a sign. Now, whenever you encounter a sign, you know it's pointing to something, a greater reality. If you walked in the building today and it said uh, uh, children's church this way or Sunday school this way, you would follow the sign to get to the actual place, but you wouldn't stop at the sign because you know it was pointing somewhere else. Signs point to a greater reality. So the first clue we have here is that Zechariah says, these men are a sign pointing to something greater. 
that something greater is what he calls the branch. He says this, he says, uh, for uh, behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Now you'll notice in your text the word branch is capitalized. And that's because as, as the people working on the ESV translation looked at this, they realized that Zechariah was drawing on a prophetic tradition. Even before the exile, prophets like uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah spoke of a person who would come, the branch, the servant, my servant, the branch. These words are, are used repeatedly in many of the prophets, and it says someone will come and bring a final solution to the sin problem. What, was, what were the priests doing in the Old Testament? They were killing animals and the sacrifice was made, blood was shed, they could go into the presence of God. And, and people watching it might say, well, how does that work? An animal for a person? The answer Zechariah tells us is that that's just a sign. There's a greater reality. Joshua himself as the high priest is actually pointing to someone else. Someone will follow. My servant, the branch, is going to come. And he's going to do what Joshua did perfectly, though, in its complete form. This reference to a, a single stone with seven eyes is, is pretty cryptic. But it may refer to, again, the, the outfit of the high priest that had a, had a signet on his forehead saying holiness to the Lord. It may be here tying together the, the role of the branch in its complete form to what Joshua did. Well, to follow this thread through the Bible, these prophets uh, spoke of one who was anointed to come and who was christened, who was the Christ who would come and fulfill this role. When Jesus began his ministry, he read from the prophets Isaiah from that same stream, that thread of prophecies, and he said, I am that guy. That's my paraphrase. Um, he said, that's me. He said, this, this the one, the branch, the servant, the one who is christened to take away iniquity in a single day, that's me. If you want to follow that in detail, you can flip to the, the back of your insert, and you can do that this afternoon, a great Bible study for you. Jesus, the greater Joshua, who goes into the heavenly courts, who by his work and ministry removes sin and iniquity in a single day. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus, our great high priest, who has a one-time ministry. After his ministry of offering his life, sin no longer needs to be paid for. Once was enough. Joshua, I have to go every year. Jesus, in one perfect offering, the divine Son of God, giving himself in our place for our sin and guilt. So... When we trust in Jesus, we are connected to him. By faith, we are united to him. And we are robed in the robes of Jesus. We are, his, his righteous life is reckoned to us, imputed to us. We stand in the heavenly courts dressed in Jesus. You notice that's what we read in our, our confession today. This is just part of the service. I confess I'm always going about in, in filthy garments, and I look to you always to robe me in Jesus. May I live in it. There's one final thing happening in this passage before we, we come full circle. 
And this thing is, was a bit of a surprise for me. Verse 10, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Isn't that an interesting way to end? I mean, we might, if you've been tracking with me so far, you've been thinking very personally, maybe internally, my guilt, my shame, how do I stand before God? How is this taken care of? Jesus does it for me. What good news? Isn't it an interesting twist that at the end, he says, now each of you are going to invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. I think it's a, it's a clue that God's purposes in redemption are far bigger than just me. But it's a people that God is building, and his redemption changes our relationships. Let me just go back to our beginning, our, our own human attempts to deal with guilt and shame. What do we do? Again, we cover it up. We deny it. We blame shift. We try to be shameless. Isn't it interesting? Pause and think about it. Each of those things is not only dishonest before God, it's destructive to our relationships with other people. Our human attempts to deal with our own shame and guilt on our own are deeply destructive to the people around us. Maybe you've encountered shame and guilt that way. Maybe you've encountered it through the attempts of your parents or your children to justify themselves by blaming you. It's ugly when it happens, isn't it? In the denial and the distortions and the dishonesty that come with our own attempts deeply break and damage the relationships around us. That's the bad news. The good news is God's redemptive plan heals our relationships. You see what's happening here? When you know you have a high priest who can go into the Holy of Holies, when you are clothed in Jesus, when you don't have to be dishonest about your guilt, your shame, and your brokenness, because you know that Jesus is deep enough to deal with it, you begin to act differently to other people. You know, the, the, the defensiveness that hurts others, you can let go of that. The, the blame shifting, the denial, the dishonesty, all of those things that are so destructive in our relationships, we can let go. And what's replaces this beautiful picture of your neighbors coming, the people's coming in to join you under your fig tree. Blame shifting is replaced with hospitality, friendship, community. And friends, I'm not saying this is perfect. We know it's not. Those of us who rest in Jesus are being transformed. We're living into this reality. God is changing us. He's making it deeper and realer every day. We need His help to do it. That's what we do as we gather here. That's what we do on our own as we meet throughout the week to talk and to pray. My, my hope and my prayer for each of you is that you have people in your life that you can be honest with about the deep struggles and the sin and the shame that you face. I'm not asking you to stand up now and tell everyone. But in the trusting relationships you have, that you can be known and the a brother and sister in Christ can minister the gospel to you by saying, I know you, I see you, I love you, and Jesus is enough. 
But that same thing is what we do every time we gather together. We rehearse together corporate confession of sin, and we hear together all at the same time assurance of pardon. And on the first Sunday of every month as we gather here, we close our our meal by eating and drinking the Lord's Supper together. It's a, it's, a, it's a really, really strange thing if you've never been around it before. When I, when I, just a moment as we move to communion, I'm going to say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And if you've been around the church, you say, yada, yada, yada. And if you haven't been, you're going to say, what is he talking about? This blood and body broken. And, and just glance with me on page eight. Look at the songs we're going to sing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Okay, you're used to that, many of you. If you're not, you're thinking, what did I get myself into? It, or even more graphic, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. What kind of weird place did my roommate draw me to? Someone's plunged beneath a flood of blood, right? This is like an Old Testament horror movie or something like that, Right? Let me just give you this thought as we prepare to come forward. When we get past denial, covering up, and blame shifting, and we're honest about what's going on in our heart, there's a deep ugliness there, a deep, profound ugliness we don't want anyone to see. What God does to minister to us in that place is a deep and profound even ugly redemption. Jesus was crucified for your sin. He bled real, real blood for your sin. In that place of, of shame, Jesus goes deeper than your guilt and your brokenness and your fear. And we're going to come here today, and you're going to be surrounded by a whole bunch of people who say the same thing. Because I know some of you are here today, and you're thinking, no one has shame like me. They don't know. If they knew, they'd find another pew. I know <laughs> people behind you are saying the same thing. And a lot of days, I'm feeling the same thing. You're going to come with a group of people, and you're going to say, I have such deep need that it required the Son of God to be crucified for me. And if you can say that, and if he can do that, then we don't have to be living in fear anymore. There's a fountain filled with blood. is deeper than anything you're going to bring forward. Let's pray together.